0: a little bit worried that the musicians are trying to take over. (laughs) And in order to restore balance, I have ordered and purchased my new preaching platform, which you may have noticed parked in the car park outside. (laughs) I'm just not sure how to get it in here. More seriously... Today we look at the parable of the friend at midnight. And in some ways it's easy to interpret, isn't it? Um, The context of the parable is clear. Uh, Turn with me to page 843, if you will, to chapter 11, verse 1, the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus responds in verses 2 to 4 with what we recognize as the Lord's Prayer. And we looked at that, didn't we? We looked at that in some detail last year at the Lord's Prayer. And then immediately comes the parable. And in terms of understanding the parable, in terms of interpreting its meaning, Jesus tells us plainly what it means, because that comes in verses 9 and 10. So, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Well, um, this is a super strong exhortation, isn't it? A super strong exhortation to be super bold in our prayers, to come into God's presence in confidence in prayer. And an analogy shows why um, human fathers, though they are evil, they have both the power and the love to give their children what their children need and what their children desire. How much more so God? Who is unlimited and unlimitable in power, and perfectly loving in all that He does? How much more so, God? We can trust Him to answer our prayers. Some some questions remain. Um, here are the questions uh, that that I have about this text. Uh, firstly, um, what is Jesus getting at exactly in verse eight? Um, I mean, what is it exactly that motivates the man in the parable to get out of bed in order to meet the request for the loan of bread? Um, What is it about that that's happening there? Secondly, what is Jesus getting at in verse 13? Um, The movement of the logic of the passage suggests that the conclusion should be, verse 13, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts To your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? That's actually what we're expecting, and that's actually what happens um, where this sentence appears in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 11. It's good gifts there, and that fits the logic and the flow of of the thinking. Why does Jesus say here, how much more so will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. Now, I'm really glad that that's so. I'm really glad that that's true. I just don't understand what it means. So, so we'll think about that. So, given those two questions, let's think a little bit more about this parable and in a little bit of, of, of extra detail. Let's start by remembering the culture. The culture in biblical times, we're dealing with a world in which hospitality is extremely important because it's extremely necessary. Uh, Inns exist, Um, plenty of inns, actually, bakeries exist as well for that matter, but most inns, by no means all, but most inns are places that would be associated with drunkenness and prostitution. Um, So as you travel, or as you need to travel, you're very dependent upon the hospitality of both friends and strangers as you move around. Uh, the ancient Near East. Furthermore, as we keep on remembering as we look at these parables, in in biblical times, to eat together is to belong together. The the host must serve a meal, and the guest must eat it. There's going to be no questions about whether anyone is hungry or not, or whether it might be better to wait till breakfast or not. The host must serve a meal. And the guest must eat it, because to eat together is to belong together. Therefore, to have a friend arrive, and for some reason you cannot offer them a meal, that would be a disaster. Now to the story. The parable involves three friends, and it's a bit convoluted, actually. So so let's let's call them traveling friend. Asking friend and sleeping friend. Traveling friend arrives at the home of asking friend after dark. That is unusual, but it's not impossible. Asking friend has nothing to set before him. Nothing. Now, that's hard to imagine, but again, it is not impossible. Um, the, the three loaves of bread that he asks for, that's not a meal. Um, just as knives and forks is not a meal. N- knives and forks is cutlery. I mean, cutlery. Uh, the bread also is cutlery. It's, um, each guest has an unbroken round loaf in front of them, and as the meal, as the meal progresses, they te- tear a bit off, they dip in, in the sauces and the various dishes. To be sure, at the start of the parable, asking friend, Asks for three loaves of bread, but sleeping friend knows that that's just the opening gambit. He knows that he's being asked to provide the entire meal, which is, as we see, exactly what he gives him in verse 8, quote-unquote, as much as he needs, in other words, everything. He's asking for the entire meal. So then, quite why traveling friend arrives at midnight is unexplained. And quite why asking friend has nothing to set before him is also unexplained. But what we may not get is that this creates a deeply uncomfortable situation. This could shame not just asking friend, but it could also shame visiting friend, and it could also shame the entire village. Um, what we don't get is that as, as, as the disciples listened to this, they'd go... Oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. The shame, the shame. The, the parable begins with a question. And the question is um, literally, uh, the translators, uh, they, have, they tr- struggle with this parable. And I, I'm going to explain a little bit of why. But that they fudge over what the question is. The question is literally, who of you? And who of you, as a question, is a well-known um, uh, formula in the gospels it occurs 11 times and if jesus asks you who of you the correct answer is always none of us question who of you answer none of us question who of you would hesitate to pull your son out of a well if he fell into the well on the sabbath answer none of us would hesitate to do that even though it was the sabbath we'd pull him out Question, who of you would build a tower without first working out whether or not you had the money to finish? Answer, none of us would do that. Who of you? None of us. So in what follows, Jesus is asking us, his hearers, how we would behave in this situation. So here is my clumsy, hyperliteral literal translation of, of what goes down. Verse 5. And he said to them, it's Jesus, and Jesus said to them, who of you? A man will have a friend who comes to him at midnight, and he might say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come on a journey to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Even so, from inside, answering, might he say, do not bother me with trouble? Already the door is closed, and my children are with me in the bed. I am not able to rise in order to give to you. Answer, no. None of us would answer that way. None of us would respond like that. The NIV translation in our hands in this instance is slightly misleading because it implies that Jesus wants us to put ourselves in the shoes of asking friend. That's the way the translators have gone. He doesn't. Jesus is not asking us to imagine what it's like to be asking friend. Jesus is asking his hearers to imagine what it's like to be sleeping friend. We are in sleeping friends' shoes here. In other words, what Jesus is asking us is, who of you would say to this asking friend, in response to his arrival of his traveling friend, sorry buddy, (coughs) I'm in bed, the door is closed, I don't want to get my feet dirty again. Who of us would respond that way? Answer, none of us. Verse 8 immediately confirms that that is is not what happened. Sleeping friend, just like you and just like me, sleeping friend did not say that. He immediately got up and gave asking friend some bread. In fact, all that he needed. Here is what verse 8 says. So I say to you, if yet he will not give to him rising because he is his friend... Yet, because of his shamelessness, he will rise to give him as much as he needs. So, sleeping friend immediately got out of bed. If not because of the tie of friendship between asking friend and sleeping friend, then certainly because of his shamelessness. Um, Now, uh, there are several problems with his his shamelessness. I'm going to go into one of the problems. The other problem is that pronoun, his, whose. Uh, to, whose shamelessness are we talking about? I'm, I'm, I, in what follows, I'm going to assume that it's asking friends shamelessness. That's the way most, most people go with this. But there's pronoun confusion. Um, to cover it over, the NI translation, NIV translators have, have turned his shamelessness into your shamelessness. Um, even though your is not there. The pronoun is third person, not second person. They've done this because they think that Jesus wants us to travel in the shoes of asking friend, but he doesn't. Jesus wants us to travel in the shoes of sleeping friend. And we've already answered the who of you question. None of us would respond that way. But in order to progress, we need to find out what shamelessness means. Um, And you'll see there's a footnote in your NIDV translation um, that that means that basically the translators are having a bet each way. The problem is that the Greek word anadeia, shamelessness, it's a rare word. It's a rare word. It only occurs once here in the New Testament. So we don't have other examples to compare context and find out what it means. We have to go to extra biblical sources. Um, back at that time to to, to look in other Greek documents and find out what the word means. And when we do that, we discover that it is exclusively always, always, always a negative word. Bad. Writing in the early 4th century, uh, some 300 years after Jesus, Basil of Caesarea uses the word, saying, Humility is the imitation of Christ, but high-mindedness, boldness, and shamelessness are the imitation of the devil. Uh, The shameless person brings shame upon themselves through undignified, improper conduct. And they may act in such a way in order perhaps to stun others into submission to their will. So it's a negative word, but in the parable, asking friend is in a terrible position. He has to swallow his pride And he has to act shamelessly to avoid an even more shameful situation. He's having to ask sleeping friends to bail him out in order not to be placed in a position of even greater shame, being unable to offer table fellowship to traveling friend. On balance, he was right to act shamelessly. To paraphrase verse 8, to go from a hyperliteral translation to a very, very, very loose paraphrase, verse 8 kind of, I think, means something like this. I tell you, even if we take the issue of friendship out of this hypothetical situation completely, we can still see that sleeping friend is going to jump out of bed and give asking friend everything that he needs, even though asking friend has been forced to act shamelessly, because sleeping friend, as an honorable man, just as you are honorable people, is going to want to help him out here. Shamelessness, although a negative word, is therefore something that can be appropriate in certain situations. Perhaps when you have to ask for help, or perhaps because in the context of this relationship, you don't need to worry about honor and shame. And I think it's perhaps a little bit difficult for us to get this, at least to get this at first, at first viewing, because we don't live in an honor-shame culture. Nevertheless, of course, we are very familiar with embarrassment. Now, shame and embarrassment are not the same thing, but we have been conditioned to avoid embarrassment at all costs, usually, and to be willing to cover over the embarrassment of others. So how can we translate this parable, perhaps, into contemporary terms? Well, forgive me, but here are some goes from me. Um, Ladies, who of you, if approached by another woman, even a total stranger, with the request for a tampon, who of you would say no to her? Answer, none of you. None of you. A masculine equivalent. I don't know, I'm struggling. Um, Men, we submit from time to time, don't we, to a prostate examination. And when that happens, it's embarrassing. Because if you think about it, such an activity in any other context, would be the essence of shame. It is behind the gesture giving someone the bird. You know what the bird is? I don't need to demonstrate that. No. That's an obscenity, isn't it? It's an obscenity that makes you feel uncomfortable. It ought to. Why would we, why would we, we be so shameless as to submit to a prostate examination? Well, actually, because it's entirely appropriate in the doctor's surgery in the context of the patient-doctor relationship. Who of us would say no? None of us. Um, Who of the doctors present would say, I'm not gonna do that? Answer, none of us. Ozzy, probably. (laughs) Fair's fair, Ozzy is a psychiatrist. Today's parable is concerned with bread. Uh, There seems to be a link between the parable and the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, give us each day our daily bread. And then teaches us a parable about a man asking shamelessly for his friend's bread. In that parable, asking friend asks sleeping friend for costly grace, and he receives it. Jesus is using a form of argument that is the how much more form of argument, how much more so, from the minor case to the major case. If you can see what the solution is with this little bitty case, then you've also got the answer to this big case. If you unhesitatingly help people when they're in need to cover over their embarrassment, to provide for their needs, even total strangers, uh, how much more so God will unhesitatingly act to provide for you, to provide for all of your needs. This passage of Scripture is about prayer, and it's about the character and nature of God. God is good. We can come before God to discuss our needs without shame and without embarrassment. Such conversation is appropriate to the creature-creator relationship and appropriate to the prayer room. We are now finally, I think, ready to look at at the last phrase. How much more so will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit... To those who ask Him, why the Holy Spirit and not good gifts? Well, um, I think there are probably many reasons. I'm, I'm glad that this is so. I just don't quite fully understand it. And I think that there are many reasons. It's great to know that God will give us the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is God's personal, powerful presence in our lives, specifically in our hearts. When we receive Christ. Now, biblically, to have the Holy Spirit is the exact opposite of being rejected. Um, To receive the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of God's acceptance. If if you believe in Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit in your heart. The guarantee that you belong to God. And he's not going to let go of you. Acceptance, acceptance by God. This passage is indeed a strong exhortation to be super bold in our prayers, but it is also an opportunity to understand the depth of the love that God has for us. This passage is teaching us that we can indeed come into his presence as shameless beggars, asking him, as our Creator, as our Father, to take responsibility for our needs, asking Him to provide for all of our needs. And when we do this, in that situation, we'll have the Holy Spirit. He's going to hold us close by the Holy Spirit as belonging to Him. When we ask, we will have more of Him. It's appropriate. He is our Creator. And we are his creatures. When God buys a puppy for Christmas, he knows it's a lifetime commitment. We are his creatures. He knows how to look after us. Why is this useful to know? Well, in actual fact, all of us. I do. I think probably you do. All of us get shamed and embarrassed by what we have to find ourselves asking sometimes when we pray. Dear God... I know that I've asked you to forgive me for this particular sin a hundred trillion times before, but... Well, what does it say in verse 5? Sorry, verse 4. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins. You can pray that a hundred trillion times. You can pray that a hundred trillion and one times. We are shameless beggars. God knows that. It's fine. It's appropriate for the prayer room we can keep on asking for forgiveness, even though we have no right to, even though we're shameless beggars. That's all right. And as for our daily needs, our material needs, help with our emotional needs, for forgiveness and God's protection and provision, from protection from testing times, many of these things we have no legal rights to ask God for any of this. We are asking for costly grace. But that's okay. We can come into his presence as the shameless beggars that we are and actually just ask for what we need and what we want. God has made us. God loves us. And in Christ Jesus, it is God's pleasure to listen and to answer, to provide, to heal, to save. The Lord be with you.